Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and his wife, Jeannie. Michael and Jeannie share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. They offer tools and support five days a week. They will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love. In Aramaic, Rachma. Michael is the author of So Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, The Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that is rooted within me. Hi and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with The Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm your co-host, Jeannie Rice, along with Dr. Tim Hayes, and we welcome you to the show. Today is Tuesday, December the 1st, 2015. Wow, November went by quick. Welcome to December, and we have a special show going on this week, but first let's welcome Michael. Well, thank you, dear heart. Thank you, everyone, who chooses to join us every day that you choose to join us. We are honored. And the fact that you lend a listening ear means this energy goes further and further afield every time you listen. And our purpose in doing this show is to provide a space of support for people to understand the first century Aramaic forgiveness process in particular and how that fits into the dynamic of shifting life out of sadness, rage, fear, pain, trauma and trauma into living as we're designed to live as true human beings. And our definition of a human being is very simple, and that is hold a newborn child, you know what a human life is. That awesome, sweet presence of love is where we're each designed to live and where, if we choose to engage in forgiveness, we can be living. Forgiveness being the removal of whatever belongs so that the restoration of what is designed to be running our lives as possible. So once again, welcome. Delighted that you're here. And we started the, the week off yesterday with uh, some history with Gail and Dave and Dr. Tim. Uh, I'll share it a little bit. Uh, coming from the AA perspective and our purpose in covering this conversation, we've, of course, along the way, run into and worked with a lot of people who've been in the AA tradition and uh, who've gotten to a space where they live a, a, a clean and sober life. And so that being said, the thousands of people having been impacted by the AA traditions, the, uh, the hope here is that the contribution that first century Aramaic forgiveness can make to those who are involved in those traditions or those who, especially with family time coming up, might be facing some family dynamics and internal dynamics that they're not sure how to deal with, we want to be of support in helping to shift those dynamics from the, sadly, the, the, the rampant pain of the world and bring us back to the state of true beingness, back to the state of love and provide the tools and the support for doing that. So we're honored that you're here with us. And uh, Gail, are you there, young lady? I am. I am here. Well, good. Awesome. Well, we enjoyed your input yesterday. It was uh, it was good to learn a little more of the history of uh, of the AA program and where it's been. And so, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you to give us the next uh, 
level of uh, of your input on the um, correlation between the two, how first century Aramaic forgiveness can be of support to people in AA, and how to bring the message of uh, of forgiveness and living truly as human beings. I I was reading through uh, a uh, a website that had some AA quotes in it, and one in particular struck me, and uh, I thought it was kind of a, a cute little quip where it said. I tried to drown my troubles, but the little buggers learned to swim. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was good. I <laughs> was cute. So, uh, so we, cute. we invite people. It is. It is, and uh, invite people to let go of needing to drown their troubles and forgive them instead. So, so what's on your mind? What's on my mind is, of course, I after I got off the. Um, the phone after the program yesterday, I obsessively went through everything that I thought about and discussed and said, and and I saw some holes in some of the things. So I wanted to fill in some holes and some gaps Great. and contribute um, some more of the influences that influenced um, the early founders to make the decisions that they made. And then um, if we still have time to talk about where I see the steps in in the um, the wake up sheet or the worksheet, and cool. um, and and go from there. So awesome. um, some of the whole well, one of the some, things you know one of the things that a lot of people who who have a lot of challenges in their lives do is they get stuck in this what the world calls an obsessive compulsive disorder, and uh, we we suggest that people who have that obsessive compulsive disorder uh, thing going that they make a shift and where it can be of support for them in reviewing, rearranging, repairing something that they've done, that they turn their obsessive compulsive disorder into an obsessive compulsive blessing and forgive the rest. So, so we'll invite you to forgive any part of you that, that wants to, uh, to make anything that you said anything other than perfect and uh, and let's go for the next piece of the puzzle. Okay, that works. Um, cool. The, what, uh, what I wanted to offer um, is to backtrack a little bit with the conversation that Bill Wilson had with Dr. Bob Smith and, and how that changed everything. Um, when right. he shifted into talking about his own drinking first to get to – to get some people to identify first with with the problem and then went right. on to talking about the spiritual solution so that was one of the other things and and they they and then the two of them went on to other people in Akron Ohio from that summer to the fall and that was when the first group of alcoholics anonymous was formed it was in Akron and the second group was formed in New York City and the third group was formed in Cleveland Ohio and they decided that when carrying the message by by word of mouth, that the message was changing and they wanted to keep it pure. They wanted to keep the formula pure. And that they decided in 1937 to write the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, the book, the, actually the fellowship, there's two Alcoholics Anonymouses. There's the book and that was written um, starting in 1937 to 1939, it was published. And um, how they wrote the book was that they had the 40 members that were staying sober. They had Bill Wilson dictate what he wanted in the book to a lady named Ruth Hawk. And she worked for stock, stock options. She typed out the manuscript. And when they would get so far or do a chapter, then they would um, send it out to the others, and then they would edit it and and make com- comments, and then they came up with how it should be written, or you know, um, a, a democracy on what should be in the book. It did get to the point where um, I've been in business meetings where alcoholics have made decisions for the group, and. Um, just trying to make a decision whether there should be a, a Pepsi machine or a Coke machine in, in a club. <laughs> and and that almost breaks up the group. So I can't imagine what that kind of process for writing a book would have been like. Um, there's a lot of, of talk about that almost breaking up the groups um, 
fighting over what should be in the book. Um, so anyway, the book was finally published in 1939. Um, there was several uh, names for the book. Uh, they had a lot of influence with the chapter uh, um, of James in the Bible. So they're thinking about calling themselves the James Group. Um, they're thinking about calling themselves the Bill Wilson Movement. And that got, there was a lot of names, but they did come up with Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was the first time that um, the fellowship takes its name from the book. And um, and they talk about the first 100 people by a time, the time that the um, the book was published that they had a hundred members that were staying sober. So they said in the, in the preface, they talk about this book has been written by a hundred people and you can't argue with a hundred people. You could argue with one person that writes a book and talks about their opinions or their experience, but you can't argue with a hundred people. So that was the purpose for doing that. Um, and I'll bet, I'll so, bet um, there've been alcoholics who've been able to argue with a hundred people though. My, my I'm sure. I'm sure there is too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there is too. Um, a lot of a lot of women that take exception to the using God and the the pronoun he has been argumented with a lot. I mean, I I certainly did argue with that as well, and then I just got so beaten up that I didn't care. It's like just tell me what to do. And how to do it so I don't have to drink again. So um, that was that one, is. Go ahead. One of the uh, the things you talked about yesterday, and it might uh, help to to give a definition of that, was that uh, what empowered Bill ultimately to stay sober was a bright light spiritual experience. And in the AA tradition, is there a definition for that bright light spiritual experience? There are two spiritual experiences that they talk about at the end of the, of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Bill Wilson had that bright light spiritual experience, and he describes it as when he was in the town's hospital dry, drying out um, because he feared that he was going to have DTs and he did need to have a medical detox. That he felt like... Uh, he was on a mountain and um and there was this endless wind that was blowing through him that was his spiritual experience that he had um this spiritual ex- experience that i had based on starting this time around in sobriety because i I've, I've been was around bouncing back and forth for a while and then i finally got sober in 1999 and um 6 weeks after Coming back to AA, um, I was reading in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was reading in Bill's story. I could not relate to Bill Wilson at all because he was a man, first of all. Um, He was very wealthy at one point in time, um, highly educated, came from a, a relatively wealthy background. He didn't have any children, and he had the perfect enabler, and I did not have an enabler. Um. And I had children, and I didn't come from wealth. I, and so I finally read his book or started to read his story. That's in the, and he talks about how Ebby Thatcher was talking, having a conversation with him in his kitchen, and he talked about how he said, "Just, just, um, you can choose your own conception of God." And and that and then the next five paragraphs that are in the book happened to me. He talks. He explains about the icy intellectual mountain which he had um, been in under finally melted. Um, he was free at last. He he figured that um, God did want to deal with people if only we would open ourselves up to them. And I'm not paraphrasing this perfectly. Um, and and so that experience happened to me. But what they talk about at the end of the book, they do have um, an appendix, and it's called, um, I believe, the spiritual experience. And they talk about two varieties of of a spiritual experience because people were starting to beat themselves up because they weren't having that bright light, sudden 
thing happened to them. Um, And they were calling the second spiritual experience the educational variety. And what that means, the definition of that one would be more working the steps, doing spiritual things every day to to widen your um, widen your ex, your human experience, and then um, and just waking up a little bit at, at a time, you know, having a a gradual change. And I've experienced both by working the steps. And and I've had several bright lights spiritual experiences since then, um, since that first one that I had. It didn't make me immune to working the rest of the steps. I did work the rest of the steps just because I had that one spiritual experience. Um, my definition of a spiritual experience is is close to the Course in Miracles, um, a change in perspective from love to fear is a miracle or a spiritual experience for me. From and, fear to love? Yeah, from fear to love, changing perception right. from fear, fear to love. Did I say that wrong? Well, <laughs> yeah, you said to, from love to fear. <laughs> and, I'm sorry. You know, it, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of bizarre, but everybody who falls into any kind of addiction does have the experience of the shift from fear and from love to fear. We all started out the same. To me, that's one of the most hopeful aspects of one doing their work is the truth of who we are and where we started is the same for everybody and will always be the same and it will always be there and it's never touched by any experience they have in the world. And there's this conversion that takes place from love to fear and to me, this work is about creating another conversion and you know that word has been sort of usurped by religions as I want you to join my church, but in fact it is a conversion from a fear-based mind back to a love-based mind. That that's really what all of the work is about. And the key step in doing that is to forgive, to let loose of the energy of fear long enough to let that connection to love be reestablished, and that really is what opens the door. Agreed, and and, and that yeah. is something that happens in in, um, in working the steps. It's also something that happens, especially looking in in the inventory process. Uh, there's four things that are addressed in the inventory process, which is our step four. Is it is um, we look at our resentment, we look at our fear, we look at our sex conduct, and we also look at um, harms done to others, and. Then we talk about them in our step five and six and seven, we start to release those. And we we call them character defects and shortcomings. And the definition of a character defect and a shortcoming is based, um, it it says in the 12 and 12, which is another piece of literature in in Alcoholics Anonymous, in step seven, it talks about the root of all of our character defects is self-centered fear. And it talks about how we um, are afraid that we're not going to get something that we want or that we're going to lose something that we already have. And, and, and looking at the, the worksheet process, that, that tells me that that are the goals. Those are the goals that we have for other people, is that we're going to lose something that we already have or we're not going to get something that we want. So that was the, right. the bridge for me there. But it talks about fear quite a bit, that we are very fear-based people and and that fear builds onto our resentment and that we can't – we use Einstein's quotes. There's two Einstein quotes that we use a lot um, is that insanity, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And the other one is that we can't – find the solution in the mind that created the problem is I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and solve a problem with the mind that created it. Yeah, exactly. And trying to figure it out. And that's the alcoholics have a tendency to be very intelligent people, very resourceful. And we think we could think our way out of it. I definitely thought that I could think my way out of it for sure. And I, I never could. I know for myself that whenever I've worked with uh, people who have a challenge with alcohol and drugs, that my experience has been that, by and large, they are some of the sweetest people 
uh, that I've ever met. And they came in with such a tenderness. I'm always reminded of the song about uh, Vincent Van Gogh and the line that says, and this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. And that when that being lands and there's nowhere to be to be acknowledged or to to really land as the the gentle spiritual being that they are, that's when the pain and the trauma begin and the rage and the fear take over and and being is lost. And uh, and protection. Of course, yes. Um, and and it, the being is lost to all of the defenses, all of the offenses, all of the pain and the trauma. And one by one, those things need to be faced. And just to reinforce for anybody that might be new, the whole uh, goal process, part of the process with the forgiveness from first century Aramaic is that recognizing that what drives perception, and if our perception is based in pain, it's because it's being driven by something. What always drives perception is goals. And as you say, there are two of the the root ones are, I've got something, I'm afraid I'm going to lose it, or I'm afraid I'm not going to get what I want. And so the the goal, when it links to hostility and fear, then it creates perceptions based in hostility or fear. And that tends to lead, in my experience, to so much pain that people sooner or later have to find themselves in anesthetic. And they experience alcohol as a relief from pain rather than the toxic substance that it is. I remember working with one woman several years ago down in Florida and she had, she was a a housewife and her husband was a, a hardworking, you know, 18 hour a day kind of guy. And they made a lot of money and their routine was, you know, he'd come home from dinner for dinner at, you know, nine or 10 o'clock at night and they'd have two or three drinks and then a bottle of wine with dinner and two or three drinks afterward. Didn't classify themselves as alcoholics, but that was a seven day a week routine. And when she started doing this work, she chose to give up alcohol. She just, you know, made that choice, not necessarily thinking of herself as an alcoholic, but realizing that it wasn't productive or supportive for her decided to give it up. And it had been a period of about five years that she hadn't touched alcohol. And uh, she shared with me in a a private session that uh, she had gone to a party and somebody offered her a drink of of, uh, hard liquor. And she said, yeah, sure, why not? And she said that the alcohol no more than touched her lips and she experienced it as razor blades in her kidneys. That was the, the sensation that she had. And my offering is that the reason why people have that attraction to alcohol is because they don't experience it as razor blades in their kidneys. There's so much pain that they experience it as relief from pain. You you take two molecules of alcohol and you take the water out, you've got ether. And people are anesthetized. So they experience being anesthetized and, you know, uh, without awareness of pain, go, this is good stuff. But once one starts to forgive and remove their pain, then they'll experience that as the toxic substance that it is, and the attraction will just disappear. And, and we see, I've seen people, you know, for years and years and years who don't necessarily go into a 12-step program really kick into the forgiveness process, and there comes a point where they just give up addictive substances because my, my take is they start to experience them as what they are rather than really from the pain that uh, they didn't know they had. So it's powerful when people start kicking in and and the core of forgiveness, canceling goals that then allows them to drop into the part of the mind that holds that kind of pain and directly bring the presence of love to that part of the mind to uh, enhance healing. So it's powerful to watch that happen. Agreed. One of uh, the things that I've experienced and by listening to speakers and being, being able to identify what the speakers are talking about is alcoholics have a tendency to be very sensitive people, which is something that you just were very sensitive. We just came into this world, not wired or um, I would say with our, our wires exposed more than I'm putting in air quotes, normal people 
Um, and and so the need, since we're so sensitive, uh, that the need to, to anesthetize seems to be more necessary. And one of the descriptions that I heard is that alcoholics have a tendency to have like this invisible spring in their gut and it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And they use alcohol in order to release that spring. And another example that I've heard was about feeling like you were born with um, ground glass on, on the inside of the skin. And as soon as that first drink was taken, that that alcohol seemed to smooth out the glass. Um, and the, the best example that I heard, and this describes me to a T, is being 30 seconds from having a screaming fit and always feeling like having to have the bells and the whistles and the mirrors and the smoke and all that going on so people wouldn't get close and really see that emptiness. And that's what I felt like. I felt like I was just on a verge of a nervous breakdown all the time. And I can remember feeling this from probably the age of four or five and and always feeling like that and knowing when I took that first drink that I found something very magic that was going to calm all that down. Now, you, you mentioned yesterday, and I didn't get a chance to go back to it, that you remembered having your first drink at five. Tell us more about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, my dad had a, a shiny Budweiser box in the bottom of the refrigerator, and he was reaching for a beer. My dad is not an alcoholic. Um, he is a compulsive overeater, and I would just like to say that my first drug of choice is sugar, and that's something that I very much – that was food is my first love. Sugar is my first love, and it's something that I went back to when you were talking about – um, when you're talking about the reiterating what I said about the drunk squad of of alcohol of the alcoholics that were that were attending the the group when you're talking about cross addicting to nicotine and coffee um during meetings as soon as alcohol and the drugs are gone, I went back to pepsi and and gained a lot of weight and so pepsi and and sugar is definitely a struggle for me that I still deal with today, and it was a struggle. Um, down in Florida, when we went to the Fresh and Raw, um, when they had the the cans of soda behind the counter, um, there were several times when I wanted to sneak back there and grab one <laughs> during the intensive. Right. But as for my first drink, um, I my dad let me have a sip of his Budweiser, and it tasted horrible. But I remember the effect profoundly in what it did. But I didn't connect the dots to that until I got sober. And then I remember my next drink. Um, and and that, that was one of the things that I heard other people talk about when they talked about their first drink. Uh, normal people don't remember the first time that they tried their parents' alcohol. You know, and so I'm like, oh, I must be an alcoholic if I remember this at five. And, and, and if I remember that, that. Yeah, that's powerful. It's powerful. So, so we're here to open space for all of that to open and heal. Go ahead. Uh, I guess guess the other things um, that I was going to offer about influence uh, um, is the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Um, was something that they used before they wrote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the the people, the key people that they turned to for that was Emmett Fox, who wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount, where he takes the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and he also takes the Lord's Prayer, and he breaks it down into what I would consider the Greek interpretation of, of those Beatitudes. And in the process of my... Uh, search to find more of the divine in in the twelve step program. Um, I also read a book 
called The Plaza Heaven by Max Licato, who is a Christian writer. And I was able to take the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and correlate that to the 12 steps. Um, For me, being poor in spirit is to empty yourself out, and that that speaks to me of powerlessness. Um, To mourn, blessed be those that mourn, what what that speaks to me as is, my old ways don't work and I need to mourn my old ways and do something different. And that's our step two is to do something different. And so I just wanted to offer that as well. Um, They use Emmett Fox's book as well as the Oxford group, um, the book of James in the Bible, um, the Beatitudes in the Bible uh, to, you know, they used all these different pieces and I wanted to offer those pieces as well. Yeah, that's, that's one of the most powerful correlations uh, from James is a very simple explanation that he gives to the reason for conflict with people, and that's what's going on inside of us. And and where James says, and you know, it's kind of one of the first messages of the forgiveness work is to stop your denial, and that when we, whenever we're in pain and we speak or think about someone else then we have to hide the part of us that creates that pain. And that's that's our definition of denial. And that's one of the upfront messages for me, at least from uh, from James. He says, stop your denial. i got to start to take responsibility. And that's a big one. Absolutely. I think I filled in all the gaps for now um, that I felt like I needed to fill in yesterday. Or and through awesome. and other influences, so I think I'm complete with that. I didn't know if you wanted to pull other people into the conversation at this point, or well, let's check with Jeannie and see if there's anybody with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room to be aware of. Uh, nobody has their hand up, and uh, David's in the chat room, but I don't see him on the switchboard. Dr. Tim is with us. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's see what Dr. Tim has to share. What's exciting in your life, Tim? Well, I'm sitting here with bated breath um, to hear well, what Gail has to say about the crossover and connection she's made, the ways that the 12-step process enriches what she's learned from Dr. Michael Rice's work and the forgiveness process and vice versa where you see corollaries or crossovers. Gotcha. Right. Well, that, let's touch into it then. Well, we will proceed. <laughs> um, what, what I saw in the, in the worksheet process, and, and there's so many different carryovers at different times, too, I will start with, with step one. The step one in Alcoholics Anonymous is, um, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Then there's a nice little dash, and then it says that our lives have become unmanageable. For me, my thoughts are that it, the, it says that um, we're powerless, that um, that is about the physical. It's about the physical allergy. For me, that's 10% of the problem. And it's also the effect. That's something that we discussed at Heartland during Laws of Living, um, cause and effect, and um, that it is a physical effect due to our thinking and our lives being unmanageable for me that is thinking, feeling, mental, and emotional. Um, that's 90%. And it's the only step that talks about the problem. And also the rest of the steps, when we work the rest of the steps, then our thinking changes, then our feelings change, and then we start to connect to the God of our understanding, and we don't have to drink again. And so, um, and that's 90%, and that is cause. And, you know, just from Abraham Hicks, um, the the new, well, not necessarily the new, but the, the reemergence of the law of attraction is that we need to change change cause instead of, you know, changing effects or changing effects for effects. So I see that anything that we're powerless over is always 10%, is always an effect. 
Um, and anything that is unmanageable is about our thinking and feelings. And we drink over our feelings. We we want to change how we feel. And to, since a thought comes first and then we have feelings, um, we need to change our thinking or we need to change the cause. And, and we're able to do that when we work the rest of the steps. How I see that correlated is, um, one, uh, the steps in the worksheet process is that the problem is laid out in one. And and when we, 1A, we put our name, um, 1B, we put down how we feel. But sometimes we don't know how we feel, so we look at what our thoughts are in, in, in 1D. And then we talk briefly about what happened, my story, and, and then um, then the object of attention. So I'm seeing that as, as correlating in, into step one, being the only piece of material that talks about the problem and the effort to change my, my thoughts or to recognize my thoughts in order to recognize how I feel in order for those to change in, in the rest of, in the rest of the worksheet. So should I stop here to see if there's any other comments right now? Or? Well, I'd throw, I'd throw in the thought that uh, when, you know, that denial game takes over, that's when we lose contact with the part of the mind that holds pain. And of course, if we don't have contact with it, it's going to simply run, run rampant and leave us in that powerless place. And the behaviors, the perceptions that come out of a part of the mind that we hide from ourselves uh, and the, the, the staying in the process of denial is what keeps us locked in that cycle because we can't honestly face what's hidden as long as we're in that denial place, as long as I'm talking about you and how you made me mad or you hurt me or that upset me or this disturbed me, then my denial keeps me separated from that part of my mind that holds my pain. And that's what I need to access to uh, bring healing forward. And so the acknowledgement of, of powerlessness over what I can't give myself access to, I think, is uh, is really key. And so in step one, uh, that's the whole process of laying out, the, you know, who I think it's about, what's my object of attention, acknowledging myself as the truth of who I am is love, and then what are my thoughts, what are my feelings, what's the situation, uh, really gives us a, an opening to start to look at the part that's powerless by simply admitting and acknowledging it. And so to me, that's kind of how step one correlates that regard. And to recognize that, you know, this body-mind unit, the carbon-based memory system uh, has a purpose, and that's to make real who we are, to embody as love. And that can't happen very well if it's filled with all kinds of dissociated content that's unresolvable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I read down farther and I looked at the I want to punishment want to punish by and I um as an alcoholic for me I and I I appreciate this part so much, um, because I think that because somebody is not doing it my way that I have the right to punish. And one of the things that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, I heard a lot of old timers say, Don't drink, don't drug, don't hit. And I'm like, what? Why? You know, <laughs> why would you say that? And then, then it was explained, and everybody giggles. You know, don't drink, don't drug, don't hit. Damn. And and so and um and it was explained that in order to punish somebody else or to have a confrontation, I would need to drink in order to loosen those inhibitions up. Or after I had a conversation or got into a fight with somebody else, then I would feel so much guilt, shame, and remorse that I'd need to drink. So then it, then I was able to understand why old-timers would say that in meetings. And so examining how I'd want to punish somebody, because I think I have the right when somebody doesn't do it my way to, to punish somebody else. And, and, and that's not right. 
And of course, there's and, the tie to, to, to there's the tie to yeah punish self as well. And there's the tie to the codependence issue because that's a power person dynamic. You know, everybody who, in order to control what's going on in their lives, has to lash out at someone whether they hit or verbally abuse or put down or whatever. Is because they had a power person who did that, and they're just replicating that power person behavior and the ability to access that dynamic and start to see where and, and to expose the hidden parts of the mind to love when in that power person dynamic becomes a very empowering process. Understood. And then the bubble uh, where we released, you know, I release and surrender myself, my feelings, see my story and my thoughts and my punishment to love. Um, I love how that is reiterated and recapped. And then I also, um, I do a little ceremony there where I'm releasing that in a visualization, releasing all that. And, and then I cancel my needs to be right and to make up another story, um, definitely looking at the, the, this is a story and that I could very easily have another story replace the story that I'm releasing. And that's something that we take care of in the inventory process as well. Um, I really appreciate when you say, you know, 42 people, 87 times, um, that, it's inside of me when I'm writing down in the inventory process who I have resentments against because I might be writing down different names, but I'm basically writing down very similar situations that happen next. And and it offers an opportunity to uh, see how I'm manifesting the same story over and over again. Just for different people. Yeah, the tie, you know, in the fourth step with uh, made that searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Each worksheet is, in fact, an inventory. Yes, and agreed. if I, if I, even if I have one event and I do five worksheets around that, that particular event in a day, I'm inventorying the hidden parts of my mind and allowing myself to allow that to come back to awareness and the dynamics of that. So that's really, uh, uh, key and 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 in effect, in doing worksheets, it's an ongoing daily inventory. It's it's a fourth step, uh, you know, virtually every day. And uh, and David has his hand up with a a comment for us. David, how are you, sir? Can you hear me? Okay. You're loud and clear. Welcome. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot, thank you, Miss Gail, for passing on all your experience, strength, and hope. It's wonderful. It's a good good day today. To, to be uh, part of the solution, because I said a lot of good, a lot of good things, and and you you were just saying that you know the uh, the the management worksheet was like a fourth step, and uh, you know I, my personal experience those sides, you know it's it's the the management worksheet is all twelve steps, you know it's basically living in ten, eleven, and twelve which we're doing a personal inventory and we're trying to find that uh, power greater than ourselves through prayer and meditation and then trying to help others or trying to practice these principles in all our affairs. And in in our book, the uh, the big book, which is the basic text of of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, in the preface it talks about that uh, the book is the basic text. And it, it really saved my life, getting in and getting a sponsor and getting somebody to help show me the truth about myself. Because I've been, uh, I've been living in denial, living a lie. Uh, you talk about Pepsi, you know, and food. It's uh, peanut butter and, and long john donuts for me. That's, but it's, it's so throughout day yet. But the great thing is, it is corrupt data. And uh, even though I lived in the program and practiced the program for a long time, it, it, it's still the basic text. It doesn't mean it's the only text. We can go elsewhere to find, to increase our spiritual path or our spiritualness, which is love and forgiveness. But uh, he also mentioned, I think, Gail, about the, you know, the first step 
we're powerless over our addiction, and it says in NA, AA, it says uh, powerless over alcohol, dash, that our lives uh, are unmanageable. You know, that dash means that there's a, there's a second thought coming, not something that pertains to the person, but there's an absolute different thought coming. And uh, the, the addiction is only mentioned in the first half of the first step. The remaining 11 and a half steps deal with my life becoming manageable. Agreed. Thank you. And right. Well, you said it. No, right you said it. And that, that's what it is. And uh, uh, my problem, including my alcoholism, was my inability to have a relationship with another human being. I didn't know that at the time. I had a great relationship with the thoughts in my own head. But those were poison. And it, and it led me around, and it made my life totally unmanageable. You know, my mind was controlling me instead of me controlling my mind. And this is where the forgiveness worksheets, you know, helps me uh, along this path, plus all the other seminars that uh, that, that goes into the, the profiling of, of that worksheet, too, you know. Uh, a power person and are you getting stressed and 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 responsible communication and mind shifting and on and on and on. But uh, you mentioned that that one quote about doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is a a form of insanity. And my mind goes to uh, the left-hand column of the things that I've done that I'm ashamed of and and the right hand column, which is all about the newborn, which is all about love. And uh, uh, I, when I'm in the, the right hand column about all the negative stuff, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, is insanity. But when I've when I've when I am just trying to get over in that human being side, that loving side, doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result becomes progress, not perfection. And that's using the same words, but now the motives are different, my insides are different, it's away from my head and into my heart, and uh, and, and that, that's just that's just a beautiful thing, you know, to 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 discover that. Uh powerful. The other thing yeah, yeah, right. The other thing that you mentioned was uh about our emotions, and uh, one of the big things, big tools I picked up uh, from from Dr. Rice and, and, and except there is, you know, that drawbridge, confusing the trigger with the mechanism. Mm. It, it, it always, I always blame the trigger, and that relieved me of my responsibility. You know, as long as I can blame you. You know, then I was free. And then they tell me that as long as I'm blaming somebody else, I'm codependent. Well, truth is, isn't right. You know, this doesn't make any sense at all. But that's, that's you know, what it all is. And uh, on, on, it's on YouTube now, but uh, there's a Father Martin Chalk Talk who talks about uh, uh, the, the first thing that goes when we take a drink or uh, uh, something in our comfort zone, the first thing that goes is my intellect. And what comes to the top is my emotions. So my first line of defense is gone. And uh, now I'm relying on, on, on my emotions. If it feels good, i got to do it. It's got to be right. And throughout the years of my addiction, as my addiction gets worse, uh, I'm, I'm doing everything on, on my feelings, and so uh, he, he talked about it. Chuck talked about it. you've got emotion, you've got an intellect over emotions, and that's that's that makes my, my life manageable. But as soon as I take a, a a drink or a drug, the intellect goes away, the emotions come to the top, and now I've got emotion over intellect. Then down the road, I quit. I quit drinking and drugging, and I'm still sensitive. Why am I still sensitive? 
because the emotions I'm using are the emotions I learned while in that addictive slime. While I was uh, high or inebriated, and uh, the winds got real closer together at the end, so I was always looking for something to make me feel better. And I discovered through the program and through through Dr. Rice's work that everything that makes me feel good uh, when I'm in an alcoholic mind is temporary. It's not going to last. I'm going to be looking for it again in five minutes or an hour. Uh, the big book talks about uh, you can't remember the humiliation of a week ago or a month ago. Well, they're being pretty nice because I can remember not remember the humiliation of this morning. So those are some things that, that I was thinking about when uh, when, he, when he were talking. In effect, in a talk that was that was uh, uh, required reading from one of the co-founders of AA, Doctor Bob, and it was um, me too. And that's that's another wonderful wonderful thing. So yeah. Emma Fox used to give these lectures in New York right down the street from where they had the AA meetings at Calvary Chapel. So after the AA, after the drug squad got through, a lot of them go down to live in Emma Fox. And uh, one, of the, one of the guys that was, uh, was an alcoholic, supposedly, his mother was uh, one of the secretaries of Emma Fox. So, you know, we just don't know how this is going to unfold. But, uh, so, anyway, I was listening, and, and it was all it was all great. I think that's my two cents. Thank you. That was cool. Well, you know, one of the points you made there, uh, Dave, was, uh, was the one about how when I blame somebody else, I alleviate myself of responsibility and I certainly seem to alleviate myself of responsibility and then uh, what I have left is all that pain which as long as I'm blaming somebody else is unresolvable and and that's what makes my life unmanageable so it's a, it's just an interesting circle so I appreciate the way you brought that around yeah and we talk about you know the feel is real but the why is a lie and yep, when I started it. out on that when I started out I, I got that from you, you know. That's cool. You know, when I start out on a worksheet, you know, my intention is, is to criticize and punish. And, I, and along through the way uh, uh, of, of that worksheet, I get to the point to where I really have to look at myself and know it's up data, and then i got a choice to make. Do I want to be serene and happy and joyful and and, and uh now what do I do next? Well, I got to connect with a power greater than myself, and uh, uh, choose uh, something, a goal for that. My the person I'm mad at to do, and as soon as I choose it, I have to cancel it. And then I go to my higher power and let them let them interject love back into it. So we can, and uh, by the time it gets over, you know, my punishing line at first. Uh, now is is in love, and, and it, you, you talk about that nicely when we talk about you know Rachma and Kuba, and, and, and once both filters are set to to love, that's absolute love, and uh, and one way to go. Not there yet. That's why I got to keep coming back. And it's a process, a lifetime of work. Yes, uh, you know the uh, the habit of, of alcohol is not. Uh, created in a day. Uh, I think it's a multi-generational process, and so, of course, it's not undone in a day, but the the truth is that people, if they choose to pick up the tools, and again, especially with the the holidays coming up and the free flow, in many cases, of alcohol and hostility and rage and guilt and old family dynamics, that one who chooses to use the tools can still participate in those family events and be in a centered, connected, loving space rather than impacted by the things around them through the things they've hidden from themselves. So the ownership of those parts of the mind are such such a big key, and that to me is one of the reasons why the inventory aspect of the worksheet is so powerful that um, one can 
own and see, as they talk about in the fifth step, exactly where their error lies, that instead of living in blockage of truth, they can live in love of truth. And when I live in love of truth, instead of, look what you did to me, I can step into, oh, my mind's telling me the lie. You know, the feel is the real, the why is the lie. My mind's telling me the lie that this is yours, and at this point I can then really own the part of my mind that I've dissociated from. And that becomes the admission of the exact nature of my error. And loving truth, I can start to bring that error to truth. And in that is its dissolution. One of the things Course in Miracles talks about is bringing the world you do not want to the one that you do. And that's holding to that connection to love, that connection to higher power, or as AA speaks of it, the God as you know him to be, and that when we hold fast to that energy and maintain that, then we can bring everything that's based in error forward, and as as that happens, that which is based in error, when it's based in truth, when the source of truth dissolves, disappears. And so it's a, it's a big key, I mean, the insight of being able to admit and to own the nature of the error is a really a powerful piece in the puzzle. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let, uh, let you go and, pick, and finish off the next five minutes. So I'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay. We appreciate you. Blessings. Dr. Tim, any thoughts? Just dittos. It's very, very nice to see the, although it's been difficult to hear the quality of the call sometimes, I'm following it. I'm hoping other people can. It's very nice to see that people are looking for similarities and overlaps between very strong, powerful systems that have helped many, many people. And um, I, I love this kind of discussion as opposed to well, my system is right because of this, and your system is wrong because of that. I love the integrative factor of this call. I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, I think it's powerful that, uh, you know, the, the beauty that there are so many places that truth is coming forward in the world, that uh, we can be fed by all of them is pretty pretty awesome. So, Gail, we're down to about three minutes. Any uh, Any closing thoughts for today? I appreciated everything Dave had to say, and and he filled in a lot of the gaps of things that I thought, but it just didn't come out of my mouth. So I, I just appreciate the way he reiterated it and made it his own and, and presented it and offered it, and, and that was awesome. It, it just it went very well, and um, it made me rethink some things, too, and, and connect some more dots with the the forgiveness process as well and i t- i agree with you that this is an inventory as well as all the steps and i used to call the worksheet inventories for the longest time because i couldn't say worksheet i'm like i'm gonna do another inventory so yeah agreed there too and step 10 is do an inventory every day as well so that is a part of that, too. And I just wanted to recap by saying that. And I guess tomorrow we will continue to go down the sheet. Awesome. Very cool. Well, we appreciate you, and thank you for your willingness to be of support. Hey, Dr. Tim, we are down for the last minute or so, so we'll close this one out and just say that uh, if you have a thought for us tomorrow, it would be well, awesome if you Put your hand up early in the show and uh, and give us your thoughts, your input, and if there's any way that we can support you, that's what we're here to do. In the meantime, if you're ready to take your work to the next level, February 1st, we'll begin a nine-day codependence to interdependence communication practical. That nine-day will then turn into a 16-day for those who want to uh, extend that workshop out. So there'll be a nine-day segment that will extend if people want to stay longer, and then we've got a 16-day laws of living plan. So if you want to take your work to the next level in a very deep experiential way, people who are really about doing their work, it's a powerful space to work in. 
And we happen to have uh, this beautiful 3,500-square-foot, very nicely appointed house, so it'll be kind of in the lap of luxury that we'll be doing this intensive. And uh, if you want to join us, then contact Jeannie or I through the website, and we'll look forward to having the conversation. Otherwise, bring a stranger to the show tomorrow and create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice and his wife, Jeannie, who present the internal Aramaic process of forgiveness. Michael and Jeannie are here every Monday through Friday on Earth Angels Radio. For more on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.yagain.com. That's www.whyagain.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.